Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Hillary. And this is the Probably Not Lupus podcast. Season two, we are back to discuss more medical mysteries and rare, strange, or unusual case studies. These are based on mostly true stories collected from our friends, medical history, journals, and fellow doctors. To protect privacy, names, dates, and locations may have been altered. Get ready for your medical mystery bolus. Probably Not Lupus is a show about our favorite medical mysteries. Nothing the hosts say should be taken for medical advice or opinion. We are not experts, nor are we journalists. It's just for fun. So enjoy. Pediatric child abuse specialists are trained to determine whether kids' injuries are accidental. They examine the injuries, rule out diseases, and speak with caregivers to determine the likely cause. But when their assessments are wrong, it can devastate families. Although protecting children from their abusers is the goal, the fallout from the process can tear families apart. Listen now as we welcome back Dr. Jesse Goodall on this week's episode of the Probably Not Lupus podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Hi, welcome back. You might notice we sound a little different because we are in person today. In the flesh, finally. And it's not just you and I. We have one of our most favorite guests back with us in person. I won't say in studio because we're in my spare bedroom. But welcome back, (laughs) Dr. Jesse Goodall. Pretty much our studio. (laughs) Hi, it's so great to be here. I'm really excited for the show. We're really happy to have you back and live in person with us. Now, a little bit of housekeeping. Next week, we will not have a show because next week is Canadian Thanksgiving and all of us are going to enjoy a nice time off. A tryptophan induced coma. Love that. And we will be back in two weeks for a two-part series. So stay tuned for that. Our first two-parter. Going to be exciting. Can't wait. So, Jesse, the last time we chatted, which was our 10th episode in season one, we covered an interesting instance of Munchausen by proxy that ultimately ended in murder. And we suggest you go back and listen to that if you want to know more. But really the moral of our story from that episode is that Munchausen by proxy is a form of medical child abuse. And we also discussed the nuance of knowing as a practitioner when to report child abuse. And we are so lucky to have your insight on that as a pediatrician. So we invited you back today to discuss another interesting pediatric case. Just as a warning, we are going to be talking about accusations of child abuse today, so please take that into consideration before listening. Shall we get into it? I believe we shall. Dr. Goodall, do you have a case you want to share with us? Yeah, so um, during my residency, um, both in Baltimore and in Michigan, um, I had the privilege of working with child abuse specialists on two different electives. So I have seen a variety of different cases, not just in those electives, but also in my general career. Um, There was one case I was only peripherally involved in, but it was quite interesting. Um, My child abuse specialist, uh, my attending, was asked to review a case um, by the defense for some people who had been accused of child abuse. And he actually came up with um, 
some evidence to su suggest that maybe this was not in fact child abuse. So actually together, he gave me a giant stack of articles to review uh, as he was known for. Great. And, uh, <laughs> as a resident gets. <laughs> and um, we poured through the case and we looked at the specific details of, of this patient. And it did look like this patient had some bone demineralization issues and had thinner bones than you might otherwise expect for a child in that age. And uh, ultimately, he decided um, that it was there was not enough evidence to say that this was categorically uh, definitely from abuse. Um, right. This case had been mostly pursued out at the, a pretty famous hospital in University of Michigan. Um, that's where it was originally pursued. And he was just looking at the details and just feeling that there wasn't strong enough evidence to say that these fractures were definitely from abuse. Um, I, I don't know a lot more details about the case other than that, but it did start a really interesting conversation among the three of us about those cases where um, abuse gets called and it turns out that probably that wasn't the case. And probably there's some cases where people also even end up in jail and kids are removed and and uh, it never gets proven that it wasn't abuse. And that's probably one of the scariest things that a parent could could think of, or at least up there. You know, it's really important um, as a any provider, as a pediatrician or child abuse specialist, to understand the awesome power that comes with that role um, and the consequences on either side of the equation. You know, this last time uh, that I was on the show, we talked about essentially missing abuse, and that can be dire, dire consequences, right. uh, often ending in fatality. Um, but then it is also incredibly horrible when uh, a child is uh, is removed from the home, uh, perhaps permanently, uh, parents sent to jail um, when uh, abuse did not occur. So it's it's and it's a really hard a hard thing for a pediatrician or, or a child abuse specialist. Um, you know, unfortunately, we can't be right all the time. It's really hard to just say, well, just err on one side or the other mm -hmm. because the consequences are so mm -hmm. dire both ways. So it's really important to remember that, you know, this is an important role. Um, the child abuse specialist is an important role. I think a little bit in this, it's easy in this case to, to feel upset and anger at injustice and, and wrongdoing. Um, it's an important job. I think the, the key takeaway of this discussion today hopefully will be about just figuring out ways that we can make things better, eliminate mistakes as much as possible, and focus on really the systems-based issues rather than looking at any one person in particular. Yes, definitely. After that little backstory, why don't we bring you our segment again in the news? Yes, so this was an interesting NBC article published at the beginning of 2020 titled, An ER doctor was charged with abusing his baby, but 15 medical experts say there is no proof. So this was a story out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, about Dr. John Cox and his wife. They're both pediatricians at um, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin. And one evening after watching a football game with his friend, Dr. Cox was cuddling his one-month-old adopted baby when he fell asleep and rolled over onto her. He panicked, um, assessed the child as a pediatrician has the ability to do, and called his wife, who agreed that the best option was to take the child into their hospital. Right. Um, in retrospect, he, took, he probably made the wrong decision by taking the child into the hospital where they both practice at. 
Um, but one of um, the baby to be assessed by other physicians who obviously are not emotionally involved. Right. Um, so this is where things kind of took a turn. So first of all, a nurse practitioner on the child abuse team mistakenly charted the infant's birthmarks as bruises. So there were about three small birthmarks on the child's arm and back. And yeah, she charted them as being bruises, which ultimately was substantial evidence in this case against the parents. Secondly, another pediatrician misinterpreted the blood tests. So they said that the results came in all normal values and no issues with any sort of clotting or blood markers. However, once this case got much more serious um, with CPS involved, they ended up actually having all these files reviewed as they should, and CPS ended up first ordering the mother's parents to stay and supervise the parents with the children. Um, And then about two weeks later, CPS actually took the child away from the family. So just based off these mistaken bruises and this mistaken blood test. Yeah. So this story demonstrates remarkable power given to these child abuse pediatricians uh, with some doctors, unfortunately, overstating the certainty of their conclusions, which ultimately harms many families as these are frequently the sole reports that CPS cases can base accusations on. So it's a huge label to give someone the label of a child abuser especially someone who is a practicing physician. Right. And several other medical professionals, after the whole thing started, reviewed the case um, and actually agreed that the baby was not under abuse. And so dermatologists reviewed the files saying that these are, in fact, birthmarks. They are not bruises. Another pediatrician read over the hematology and said that this child has markers that could potentially indicate a clotting issue. Right. And so ultimately several emergency room doctors described an out of control child abuse team that's really too quick to report minor injuries to authorities. This team is also apparently at this hospital specifically too closely aligned with the state child welfare investigators. So ultimately this really doesn't have a good ending because the father was charged criminally as a child abuser and has an open criminal case with a felony charge intentionally to cause harm and child abuse the current notice states parties are engaged in ongoing discussions on this matter and request additional time wow so this started in 2020 you said and it's still going on in criminal court right now. Exactly. So I think the incident happened in 2019, and then the article in NBC was published at the beginning of 2019. Oh, but wow. it, the baby hasn't been with the family since. And it was a one-month-old. It was a mo- one-month-old, and the family already has it. So it's their third adopted child, and um, the child has two older adopted brothers who were really young at the time. And um, the older one remembers the child being there for a short amount of time. Right. Um, and the younger one doesn't really have many memories, but they're kind of wondering, is that going to happen to them next? So it really does destroy families and affects also the other children involved. You said something interesting about these child abuse pediatricians having a lot of power Mm -hmm. and especially, uh, in regards to engaging with court authorities and aligning with prosecutions in criminal court. Yeah, no, I, I, the only thing that, that stuck out to me, and I think we kind of just winked at it, but, you know, you said that maybe it was a mistake that he went to his own hospital, you know, and it's hard to say, this is pure speculation, mm-hmm. but based on my many years working in hospitals and dealing mm-hmm. with hospital politics, um, which can be really thorny thing to navigate, yeah. um, 
you know, I have to wonder. I mean, just looking at the facts that we have here, and we could have, you know, sparse details. Maybe we're not getting the full picture. But just looking at the facts and and looking at the cases I've seen in the past and the the things that CPS has, that I thought were really serious, that CPS has neglected to pursue, um, I have to wonder if there weren't some politics involved, if this doctor hadn't made some enemies at the hospital. And if it would have been a different outcome, had he gone to a different hospital where they don't know him from Joe, you know? So this... And that's really scary, too. Mm-hmm. That's really scary, too, that uh, we give some people so much power that if there's some sort of personality conflict, that that yeah. can influence. It should really be just about the facts. But as we're going to see as we talk later, oftentimes it's it's more than just the facts. Yeah, I was also wondering <clears throat> if they, if it would have been a different outcome if he had gone elsewhere. But it sounds like he is, too. Yeah. So one area where I think that this is interesting and important is in the perinatal period when mom's pregnant there's a number of tests they undergo um and one of those is urine drug screens um i can't say that i'm totally familiar with how it works in canada but i know in in america um moms will regularly undergo drug screens um both during the pregnancy and at delivery and the impact of that is if they're positive you know usually we'll follow up depending on what it is usually we'll follow up and do a, a drug screen on the baby as well and that can have impact. That can lead to CPS referrals. Um, right. That can potentially lead to removals, depending on what the drugs are. But from what I've seen, typically speaking, moms are not explicitly asked, do you want to have a drug screen? And in fact, in one case, I knew a resident who, I mean, of course, you never really know for sure, but it seemed like there was a, a resident who had had a positive drug screen. It was likely a false positive. There's some you know, for example, antibiotics or other normal drugs that you can take that can lead to false positives on of these course. things. Tests are not perfect. To the point where I feel like, for myself, you know, my vote would be just explicitly say, no, you're in drug screen. The only reason that uh, a doctor could ask for your in drug screen is basically because they say they don't believe you when you say you're not taking drugs. And I think that that's a pretty inappropriate role for a provider to say, I don't believe you. I want proof of the thing that you're saying that you don't do. Mm-hmm. You know, some people do lie, but again, that's the prerogative of the mother to me. And even that, you know, it's one thing if they are lying, okay, like they lied and now you're asking for this test, but there's no, there's not even, that conversation's not happening. There's Frequently. no informed consent at sometimes, all. Sometimes it does. Sure. Sometimes it doesn't. Right. And but it doesn't, that's a problem. Yeah. So for me, from my point of view, you know, as a parent, um, well, or, or would be parent in this hypothetical situation, there's no upside. There's no upside to the drug screen. I, you know, I as the mother, you know, if, sure. if, 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 if it's the mother, but me as the, the husband, I, we know that there's no drug use being used. The only thing that can happen is that the, the test comes back negative and great. We already knew that. Or there's a false positive and then we're embroiled in whatever that the outcome of that is. Right. So, you know, what's the point? But it's, as you said, it's, to me, it's horrendous in the cases where it's just sort of assumed that because you signed some sort of like general consent that every single test thereafter is uh, reasonable. And I don't think that's a reasonable assumption, especially one with legal implications. Definitely not. You know, we also test for sexually transmitted infections. And at least in that situation... You can make the case that uh, a patient maybe didn't know. Sure. Right. You can have yep. an STI without yep. knowing, but in the case That's of more urine, reasonable than drug use. In the case of urine drug drug screens, um, if a patient's lying, they know they're lying. They know they took the drugs. Um, you know, and to me, if they're lying about it, that's kind of an indication that they don't want you to know about that. 
-hmm. You know, that kind of tells me that probably if you ask them directly, they would say no. Right. And I think it's kind of a legal loophole to say, well, we just had like a general, you know, consent to care. And so we can do whatever we want when either you got the explicit approval or they or you're saying that you think they lied, in which case they probably wouldn't if you asked them. Right. Um, I think that's pretty unethical. Well, on that note, let's take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about child abuse pediatricians and the power that they hold in healthcare. Welcome back. Took a little quick break, and we are back now to discuss with you an article in The Atlantic by Stephanie Clifford, who is an investigative journalist, and she did it in collaboration with The Marshall Project. And this is a nonprofit website where journalists can post articles about criminal justice. And often these stories are ones that would otherwise not be covered by media or are suppressed because of the people who are on the other end of it. And in this case, they often talk about when the misdiagnosis is child abuse. Now, this specific article follows the stories of two families who both lost custody of their child. Both children's cases would turn on the diagnosis of a child abuse pediatrician, an increasingly powerful medical specialty. Now, we use this term child abuse pediatrician a couple times before the break, but I'm going to explain it a little bit more now. So these are pediatricians who are trained to determine whether kids' injuries are accidental. Their assessments can be subjective, but they're often accepted as fact, for instance, in court. And when they're wrong, it can devastate families. Now, these doctors are trained in diagnosing cases of child abuse. They examine injuries, they rule out disease, and they consider the family's explanations. They also receive training on how to recognize types of fractures most common in abuse or the pattern of bleeding in the brain from shaking. On top of physical abuse, they also screen for emotional and sexual abuse. They write up reports for the courtroom and often provide testimony. And usually this is for the state prosecution and child welfare departments. Now, this specific article highlights one major problem. Many parents don't know these specialists exist and that there is a complex legal proceeding ahead of them. It's kind of like talking to a cop without a lawyer. So after I read this, that was really sort of the sense I got. You might think, well, you know, if you're honest, you have nothing to worry about. But we are all kind of familiar of cases where police are able to manipulate the conversation to their advantage, even with an innocent individual. In fact, one of the specialists this article discusses is a doctor named Sandeep Narang, who is a child abuse pediatrician. But this person actually also started out as a lawyer. Now, you might be thinking, this is a setup for some bias that has big implications, and you would be right. Because in 2017, researchers gave child abuse pediatricians cases of potential abuse with certain socioeconomic cues about the victim's families. Things like unemployment status, which would be considered a negative social cue, or, you know, a professional parent, that would be a positive social cue. When researchers reverse those cues, for example, by telling the doctors the caregivers were professionals and not unemployed, they found that the diagnostic decisions changed in 40% of the cases. Now, this goes even deeper. In a 2002 study, researchers demonstrated that hospitals are far more likely to report Black, Hispanic, and Native children for potentially abusive fractures. This is really why I wanted to tie it into our criminal justice system, because as I was reading this about the healthcare world, I was seeing a lot of similarities between how people who generally 
are more disenfranchised in the medical system are also disenfranchised in the criminal justice system. I should also mention these cases are often being heard in family court as well and not necessarily criminal court and the burden of proof to show that a parent is abusing someone in family court is much less than criminal court. So these parents really have multiple things stacked against them. Now I'm obviously not trying to advocate to make it easier for people to abuse children. But much like the criminal justice system, the family court system is flawed and often leaves people who are already disenfranchised in the medical community set up in a system stacked against them. Ultimately, the two stories described in this article were not cases of child abuse. One child had fragile bones as a result of treatment from the hospital, and another had a genetic bleeding disorder and ended up dying while his father was being questioned in police custody. Moreover, he was charged with murder and spent more than a year and a half in prison before the prosecution finally dropped the case. So kind of like what you were saying, Emma, this child has been removed from the home, has been removed from the family. In this case, this child actually died as a result of a child abuse specialist incorrectly diagnosing child abuse. And someone spent a long time in prison. Yeah. Yeah, so these are really interesting stories. Um, like we were alluding to before, these are some of the horrific outcomes that can happen when mistakes are made. So I'd like to take a, a moment to talk about maybe how some of this can happen. The people who go into these professions, the child abuse specialist, which is a sub, uh, is a fellowship that happens after you do uh, a residency in pediatrics. Um, I think a lot of the time we look at these signs as you know hard, independent evidence but it's always in the larger context uh, of a bigger picture. And there's a lot of ways that we can, our biases can seep into our decision-making process. So, you know, I think all three of us can probably attest to one of the things that I'm concerned about, not just in the context of child abuse, but also just in terms of medical education, is the way we go about both teaching and evaluating doctors. There's a heavy emphasis on uh, rapid decision making, multiple choice questions where there's maybe five sentences and you have to make uh, quick associations. Uh, you have 60 seconds and then you move on to the next question. Mm -hmm. And for those of you who haven't been in medical school before, these tests are frequent and persistent. Pretty much every single test that you will encounter if you go through medical school is going to be this type of high stakes, multiple choice test where you get a very little bit of time to make a, a rash decision on limited amount of information. And a lot of people will compare it to studying for Jeopardy. In fact, one of my colleagues actually was on Jeopardy and did relatively well. Oh, wow. Um, but it, there's a lot of memorization and just kind of quick associations. So to give an example that has nothing to do about child abuse, I like to give the example of um, looking at the most, this is just a random medical fact, but I think it illustrates the point. What's the most common cause of a urinary tract infection, like in terms of the bacteria. E. coli. E. coli. E. coli. It's got about an 80% association, meaning 20% is caused by something else. And then if we do the same question, but with meningitis, you know, we might ask what's the most common, just overall uh, cause, bacterial cause of meningitis and... Strep pneumo. Yeah. Streptococcus pneumoniae. Um, now that one's a little bit different. It's not like with E. coli and UTIs where it's 80% association. That one's 20%, you know, and then there's a number of other ones. Basically, it's a minority leader. Um, right. So that means that if I ask you what is the most likely cause of this patient's meningitis, the answer is anything but strep pneumo, right? right. Strep pneumo is yeah. the, most, the most common out of a bunch of other options. 
but 80% of the time it's going to be something other than strep pneumo. So the reason I bring this up is when we hear these associations, so let's let's talk about some, some child abuse applicable associations, such as uh, retinal hemorrhages. That's a finding right. that we see um, oftentimes in babies who have what we commonly call shaken baby syndrome. Right. Um, you know, there's increased pressure in the, the brain that can lead to uh, hemorrhaging in the retina. That's the, the, the thing that we use to see in the back of our eyes. So, and we can see that on exam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. when you okay. look into the eyes, like an ophthalmologic exam, um, you can potentially see these retinal hemorrhages. Now, throughout our training, we've been taught, and it's not entirely incorrect, that if you see that, you really need to think child abuse. That it could be shaken baby mm-hmm. syndrome. Or what we call in, the, in, in medicine, non-accidental trauma. That's the term for abuse. So it's a pretty strong association. So I did a little bit of research before this episode. Um, a few studies found that mm, about 15% of cases of retinal hemorrhages are actually caused by an accident, an accidental trauma, n- not abuse. Right. Um, now, so that's 85% association with uh, retinal hemorrhages and, and actual abuse. That's a pretty strong association, but that's still a lot of cases, 15% of cases potentially, um, at least in this one study that are caused by something else, that's a really big margin of error to be deciding to take away a child and to potentially put somebody in jail, especially if that's the only piece of tangible evidence that we're relying on. It could be a really good piece of evidence to, to add into a larger story. But you know, I worry sometimes that in some cases, we just see this one association, and yes, it's a strong association, but not strong enough to completely uh, upturn somebody's life perhaps right and if we take your stats into numbers there simplify it right so if a hundred people a hundred parents mm-hmm. are accused of child abuse 15 of those did not actually abuse their child that's not an insignificant number to then completely disrupt an entire family As- assuming that you know those 100 cases were just turning on retinal hemorrhages alone yeah that would that's what we would be risking so that's that's pretty scary you know, and we that, that article that you brought up, the Atlantic article, I thought it, it, there was a really interesting kind of point in the article where Dr. Narang um, at one point kind of changed his, his, his viewpoint on the, right. in the article, changed his testimony. So he was, we can kind of age how old a fracture is based on how it looks mm-hmm. on, on the x-rays. Um, so originally he had said that the the fracture looked like it was probably seven to 10 days old. And the reason that was important was because at that time, the timeline established that that child was in the care of the parents. Mm-hmm. Later, um, upon questioning and cross-examination, he amended his testimony to say it was actually more like 10 to 14 days. And that actually seemed to place that under the care of the hospital. Um, you know, And so that's you know, the question I have, and we all know the answer is, you know, at that point, we're saying that this is like definitely a fracture from abuse, or at least that seems to be the position the team's taking. Um, so did we turn around and start saying that somebody at the hospital abused this child? Right. Certainly not. No. Nobody is say saying that. that. And and maybe that's that's correct choice to do. But that really calls into question how strong that evidence was. If on the one hand, we're saying, well, if the parent, if the parents were in charge of the kid, this is definitely a fracture of abuse. But if they were in the care of a provider that it's definitely not abuse, well, then how strong is that evidence, really, if it Mm -hmm. depends on those kind of contextual cues? I think that we really, you know, in that kind of case, then you really need to take a step back and think again about the testimony that you're giving. So I, 
you know, in my career, I do sometimes get uncomfortable with how close it feels like we're working with police. Now, at my hospital, it was actually a little bit different, and I was thankful for this. So at least when we were dealing with the floor, we were explicitly told your mandated reporting is to CPS. CPS is sort of the in-between person. If police come by and they're allowed to come by and they ask you questions specific about a case, you're not talking to the police. And I think that that makes more sense. I think having CPS in the middle, you know, even unfortunately or fortunately, we're not the investigator. The doctor's not the investigator. It's not like house where they send mm-hmm. the the doctor to the house to break in and, and look around. That doesn't happen in real life. That's just drama. Um, so, you know, if we suspect, even suspect abuse, we need to deal with CPS because we can't do a full investigation. The CPS is going to go to the house. Right. But... Um, Hope, you know, but I do think in some other hospitals they're working intimately with police and to the point where the doctors are basically just an extension of the police. And if that's really going to be the case, that doctors are just going to be kind of the medical examiner for the police officer, then I really think that when parents come in, that needs to be clearly identified. People need to be read the Miranda rights and have the opportunity to have a lawyer there. Otherwise, I mean, that's it's wild to me. That that doesn't need to happen. Absolutely, because we saw exactly what happened in this article, where one of the parents, you know, sort of casually mentioned to the doctor that the child wasn't necessarily planned. You know, as my mom would say, "Oh, you were a surprise," which is just a nice way of saying accident. But whatever, <laughs> here I am. And so, you know, this mother just sort of casually brought that up in conversation, and it was later used against her in court that she, you know, somehow didn't care about the child because she, quote unquote, didn't want it. And it just sounds like everything's being twisted against you. Yeah. Exactly. The conversation's being manipulated to fit their narrative instead of the truth. Well, and and another example in that exact same article, something that really stuck out to me as totally inappropriate was the, the caseworker had made note that when the kid was removed from the home... She didn't have, you know, some basically emotional outburst. She seemed right. she seemed like she didn't care that much was what she was trying to frame it, which is absolutely wild to me because you absolutely can't win. No. Right. If you have some big emotional outburst, you know, and you're you're freaking out, you know, basically everybody's going to think, well, you're guilty. And if you're too calm, like the court system wants you to be, you're also guilty. You're basically a sociopath because you don't care about your kid. So how can you win in these kind of cases? Now, again, there are absolutely cases of real horrendous abuse. You know, it's easy to just focus on one side of this issue. Last time we focused really on that other side, and now we're giving a little more focus to the other side. Um, But that, you know, we need to be really cognizant of, of what we're doing as providers here. I think that moving forward, you know, the question is, where can we go from here? Right. And certainly this is a complex, nuanced issue, but I, there are some indications that of where we can move forward. And I really like what I'm seeing out of Nassau County in New York State. And what they're doing is they're trying to remove some of the racial and socioeconomic bias from their removal decisions. This isn't really the providers who are involved. This is the CPS teams. So in this pilot project in 2010, before they started, they found that 55.5% of removals in Nassau County were of black children. And then they institute this process where there's the caseworker who knows all the details, but they only present to the committee the facts of the case. They try to remove any indicators of race or socioeconomic status. And what they found was after they instituted this blind process, the percentage of 
children who were black went down to 29%. And then wow. so uh, That's in huge. the New York governor at the time, Andrew Cuomo, uh, proposed to implement this statewide. And there's been a lot of effort to try to uh, move this to, I think LA uh, County was looking at this as well. Um, there's other places around the country, around America, where they've been trying to do this. And I think we need to see this in Canada as well, honestly. I think it should be everywhere. And the fact that it took till, what, 2020 to implement this? Yeah. Well, and even to take it one step further, back to what you were talking about with testing, you know, those sorts of cues are often presented to medical students as well, too, when they're making decisions on these many tests that they take. Absolutely. And same thing, what is, if, if all you're doing is reinforcing someone's implicit bias, who is that helping? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I worry a lot about the way we do medical tests, um, like evaluations. And, you know, I think the reason we do it is because when you're testing tens of thousands of people at once and you need to have some sort of standardization and you need it sure. to be done quickly and efficiently, you know, there is value in, in these sorts of tests, perhaps. But I worry about generations of providers walking away with, you know, if A, then definitely B 100% right. mm-hmm. of the time. Yeah. When really it's 20% of the time. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's... And so that's not just in terms of the context of child abuse, but also in other contexts. Like, you know, it, it can be good to have those quick associations. But I think the thing we need to walk away with is, you know, sometimes, generally speaking, when we look at child abuse, for example, we think, you know, retinal hemorrhages is child abuse until proven otherwise. Mm-hmm. But we have to remember about the until proven otherwise. Correct. We can't, right. <laughs> you know, yeah. you can't, we have to do it that way because if, if it has to be child abuse until proven otherwise, because... The consequences of, of sending the kid home and, and making child abuse the absolute last thing that you consider. We can't have a world where... Abusers can continue to abuse. It, you know, this is, is, it is important, but you still have to really do your due diligence and not just 100% assume that retinal hemorrhages equals abuse or any number of other associations because there are, even if it's 1% of the time, at a population of 330 million, um, 1% is a really big number. Another thing that I wanted to talk about, during my training, there were a few cases where I felt, honestly, it's kind of the flip side of this discussion. I felt like there were some cases that probably should have been referred to CPS or or might have had the race card been flipped. Right. You know, so I had a couple cases where, you know, I don't want to get into too much detail because I really want to protect the identities of the people involved. But there is one case, for example, where there was a young child who ultimately passed away um, and they were part of a, a religious subgroup and this kid was critically ill and did not receive care for 12 hours and ultimately passed away and the CPS was not called in that case and I feel like if they weren't a member of a religious a Christian subgroup white group if it was a single black mother and she did not seek care for 12 hours for her critically ill child, not only would CPS have been involved, but I feel pretty confident that she would be in jail. Right. And I really want to be clear that I'm not harboring ill will towards the family. I think it's terrible that this outcome... Of course. But I'm really taken aback by the disparity in in treatment here. Right. And it, feels like, it felt like a pretty clear case of bias. We had another case that wasn't as egregious it was a child who drowned in a backyard pool 
Um, and I wasn't directly involved in the case, but the social worker did ask my opinion whether CPS should be involved or not. And my position was, I think it's reasonable to have CPS at least go just investigate the home. You know, usually mm -hmm. a pool needs to be surrounded by a fence, the self-locking gate. And at least, you know, can we make recommendations to prevent this sort of thing from happening again? Thankfully, the child survived in that case, but it was really touch and go for a while there. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, they didn't. And and the, the facts in this case was it was an affluent family. They were white, you know, and, and again, I feel like perhaps if this had been a single black mom, you know, and had the kid had drowned in the backyard somehow, um, the outcome would have been different. And so I think these are real world cases where, um, we are seeing these implicit biases play out. Now, it's funny you bring up bias because we also want to introduce yet another new segment called This Week in Fallacy. And we're going to let Dr. Jesse Goodall take away on this one. So when we're talking about these associations and how this happens, how these biases can play in, I think it's important to understand the limits of our own brains, the assumptions and associations that we make on a day-to-day -day basis and how things can go wrong and we do it a lot so one that i want to talk about today is called the base rate fallacy and i'll, I'll say it in the context of how i first learned about it um, has nothing this example has nothing to do with child abuse but you can see how it could apply mm -hmm. let's talk about breathalyzers okay so let's say that we're we i tell you breathalyzers are 98 percent accurate all right so to be clear um if you have a positive breathalyzer, 98% of the time, it's a, a true positive. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, okay. So if I say, Emma, you're getting pulled over tonight and you test positive on the breathalyzer yeah. and I ask you, well, what are the, what's the likelihood from the officer's point of view, what's the likelihood that this is a, a true positive? They probably think hundred percent it's true positive or, or 98% yeah. based on that that data but that's that's this is an important distinction between your sensitivities which is a, an assessment of the test and your positive predictive value which is an assessment based in the population so let's take this test again so let's say I'm the police officer now and I'm gonna be doing breathalyzers all night now let's say that I know for a fact like we're, we're evaluating this test I know for a fact that one uh, I'm gonna do a thousand breathalyzers tonight and my entire population is sober all right. Okay. Okay. I know that for a fact. So, and I ask you again, well, if I get a positive test, what are the odds that it's a true positive? Zero. Zero. They're all, they're all incorrect. Okay. So let's do it the other way around. I know that a thousand people, they're all drunk. They're all over the limit. And we do the same test. What are the odds that my positives are accurate? A hundred percent. hundred percent. Right. And so you can see anywhere on the spectrum, it depends on your population, right? If there's only one guy out of a thousand, then most likely any positives you have, probably not that guy, right. you know, probably most yeah. of them. If there's two, if there's three, if there's half, you know, or if, mo if all but one guy is drunk, right, then anywhere on that spectrum, it's going to affect your positive predictive value, the value of a positive test in predicting whether it's accurate or not. That's that's referencing the base rate fallacy. So this is important, I think, when you're looking at these associations and the strength of these associations to make your decision to under understand the limitations of these these associations, these connections we make. And I think unfortunately a lot of the times, you know, when we're out in the real world practicing, we're we can forget that we need to take everything in a larger context and not just depend 
on these rote memorization associations that we made in medical school. Right. Great point. Very well explained. Well, we covered a lot of ground today in another episode that I can already tell is going to be a lot longer than 25 minutes, but we're happy to have you. We're thankful to have you back again. It was so much fun. Thank you for having me. I really enjoy these shows. Anytime. You are welcome. And we're... What an even bigger treat to have you in person. To it be looking at everyone's so eyes. So much better to be in the flesh. So much better. Reminder, once again, we are away next week. We're taking a break for Canadian Thanksgiving. But come back, tune in in two weeks for a special two-part series we're going to bring you. Already excited. All right. See you in two weeks. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you want to support our show, you can subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe even give us a rating and leave us a comment. Probably Not Lupus is written, recorded, edited, and produced by us alone, still in our bedrooms. If you want to chat with us, you can also find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Gmail at Probably Not Lupus.